Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined by Scott Voloshin. How you doing, Scott? Everything's good with me, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show again. Well, no, I was just, I was just speaking off air, you know, saying pretty appreciate you taking the time again to come on the show. Uh, it was really interesting. I think it was in January, actually, the last one, to delve into, like, you know, obviously your history of how you got into programming stuff and then touch upon a couple of really interesting topics in the functional realm. And, yeah, I thought, you know, it'd be great to come on again because I know you recently did a another presentation at the NDC London uh, that got recorded and has been released, I think, in mid-February got released. And, yeah, I was going to say it's really, really interesting, uh, 13 ways of looking at a turtle. Uh, and a really interesting, really great title because um, it, it carries on from like some of your other interesting titles like uh, Frankenfuncter and things like that. So always interesting titles. <laughs> Because I know it's similar to how you did your functional design patterns talk, where you took a lot of different things and you kind of condensed them down into you know little chunks. And actually, in this one, even you had a little bell just to make sure that you got through them all. And and so yeah, so the talk goes around like takes one problem domain and explores many different aspects, like many different ways of tackling it and thinking of it. Uh, and I was just wondering, like you know, how valuable do you think, like as a learning exercise, it is for like a programmer to actually do this kind of you know take one problem domain that they may know already in inside and out and really explore other avenues i think i think it's an excellent approach and um it's especially because one of the problems when you're learning anything is sometimes you have to learn um you know you, you want to minimize the, the amount of new things you have to learn when you're learning something and i know for example that there's i can't remember who it is but there's a couple of people who when they learn a new programming language they take a problem that they know inside out, and I think for this person it was it was writing a, a, a Lisp interpreter. But you take something that you know inside out, and you've done it before, and you and you try and do it using the new programming language or the new, uh, you know, functional program, new paradigm like functional programming or what, whatever it is. But then you don't have to worry about um, trying to understand the problem. You already understand the problem, and now you just you can really focus on on the different kinds of techniques that you have to use. And um, I, I mean, I did this, this is 13 different ways of doing uh, the same problem, which in my case is turtle graphics. And there's a, um, a woman called Krista Lopez who's done a whole book on different, um, taking the same problem and looking at very different ways of doing it. Uh, it's called uh, Exercises in Programming Style. And um, yeah, I definitely think it's extremely useful. Um, it's an extremely useful way of learning something because there's so many different ways of tackling a problem it's just kind of i think it's i think it's very interesting i think that uh, what you say you know is, is very true that it, it takes away that cognitive overhead of having to understand a new problem and a new technique or something and it really kind of shy, it allows your brain to kind of just see the differences based on the technique and the actual solution to the problem as opposed to the actual domain itself yeah exactly and, and, you know, so your talk explores a lot of like the management of state and behavior. And I really love the kind of general thread through the, the actual talk, you know, of how do we actually place these and, you know, where you place them, how they interact with each other. I'm just wondering, like, what was the inspiration then for this talk? Well, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I'm always looking when I'm, it actually came from a blog post that I did, which also was called 13 Ways of Looking at a Turtle, which actually ended up being 15 Ways of Looking at a Turtle. And... Um, I don't. No one seems to uh, recognise this, but there's a well-known poem called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird," which is the same kind of thing from a, a poetic point of view. I don't think most of my readers are, are particularly have a, po a poetry background, so maybe they didn't get the the joke. But um, so obviously, yeah, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird." So it's like, well, the turtle. I can't do a blackbird, but I can certainly do a turtle, and because turtle graphics are a very well-known thing, and I thought that's a nice small domain. I mean, a lot of my blog posts they're just you know, it's like okay, I need to write something. What shall I write about? <laughs> so, and I, I was just, I was just thinking, yeah, it's, it's silly. I like to do silly stuff if I can, just because uh, there's so much serious stuff, especially in the world of functional programming. And I thought something wacky. It ended up being quite a sort of serious talk, but the, the, at least the concepts, at least the, the inspiration was sort of strangely wacky. And in my blog post, I actually have little fragments of a poem. Uh, which is yeah, I noticed those. Yeah, well, there's no there those I made up, 
because the real poem but if if you look at the real poem the 13 ways of looking at blackbird i've i've changed the wording so instead of where it says blackbird in the original i i say turtle and where he has something else mountains or something i have monads you know so it's just it's just a silly very silly thing but it's fun i enjoy being creative that way I think, as you said, you took a really nice problem domain, a visual problem domain as well, I think, which worked really well in the presentation to kind of be able to see, you know, something. I think people really do like seeing visually some things like that. And it's quite nice to build it up as being a real thing. And obviously, you know, we've used something like F uh, sharp scripts and stuff. You're able to really run the code through the REPL as there and then. And you can show, like, this is real code that we're writing. You know, this is a real solution I've actually made. It's not just kind of an idea in my head that this could work. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, first of all, I, in my presentations and in my blog posts too, I always try and have as much graphics and, and diagrams as possible because it's it's so much easier, I think, to understand pictures than it is to understand words. Or at least it gives you the context. And then once you get the concepts, the words then make more sense. But I, when I'm faced with a, a wall of text, um, I, I find that quite intimidating. So it just helps to um, break it up a bit. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the nice thing about being able to do in the talk i actually do live coding or, or not live coding but just a real demo because the you know because the whole thing is just a few lines of code which is one of the great things about f sharp and so yeah you can actually see it work in real time i think it's i when i do presentations i i, tr I try to avoid having too much coding it's kind of an sometimes you go to the thing and it's just somebody typing away into a editor and that's that can be a bit boring sometimes so my stuff is sort of pre-canned and it just means I can run it and, and it will work, you know. But it's just nice to show that it's a real thing. It's not just, um, yeah, it's not just a kind of theoretical concept. It's actually, you can actually see what the code looks like. No, it's really cool. And I thought it'd be really interesting to go through some of these solutions. And obviously, the first one that comes to mind, and this is very much, I think, familiar with a lot of people, is the object-oriented solution. Yeah. Uh, and that really is the kind of idea that you'd, you know, you'd have your internal mutable state with your internal behavior as well. And you'd just be calling these the API on it. And it's really kind of treating it as a black box. And I'm just wondering, kind of like, again, people are very familiar with this approach. So that's probably one of the pros on it. But what other things do you find as a pro and con to actually this approach using object orientation for solving a problem like this? Well, I mean, the you know, the the classic thing about object-oriented stuff is it's the encapsulated philosophy that you basically, you don't, it's a black box. It keeps track of its own state. It keeps track of its own, everything it needs to keep track of. And you just call methods on the object and it, it deals with everything. And that's, um, you know, that's fine. But um, like I say, it's, it's, it's very convenient. It's very familiar from a um, bigger point of view the problem with it being stateful is so yeah it manages its own state but it makes it very hard to see what's going on inside the box because it's a black box and that may be you know in some sense that may be a good thing but nowadays i think if it, when we when we're, we're very into doing you know unit testing and so on it's very hard to test something when you don't understand how it works inside so the whole philosophy of making things much more transparent, passing all the dependencies in explicitly, trying to make pure functions using immutable data and stuff. Even in the object-oriented world, people are uh, aiming in that direction because it just makes things much easier to test. And it also makes things much more decoupled because you can start gluing them. If the dependencies are explicit and the behavior is deterministic, is you know, then you can compose them together much more easily because you know exactly what you need to do to glue them together. So yeah, I think the tr traditional style object-oriented programming is um, it's actually been replaced by the agent. I mean, the, the Alan Kay originally said that what he would call object-oriented programming would be what we would now call uh, agent-based programming, where you have these self-contained things and you send them messages and they talk to each other through messages. And in Smalltalk, for example, that's that's sort of how it works in Smalltalk. Um, the object-oriented stuff, that kind of philosophy got lost a little bit. Yes, the enterprise in, hour. In the enterprise <laughs> hour. The C-sharp and Java and so on. Um, the focus tends to be on classes and on much more structured way of doing things, interfaces and stuff. And I think that kind of got the, the original concept of OO sort of got lost in the shuffle there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, agent-based programming is obviously making a big comeback through, uh, you know, ACA and cloud-based uh, stuff. And then having explicit dependencies, you know, dependency injection, obviously, and making things uh, easy to unit test. So definitely the philosophy of having a black box is, is sort of out of fashion right now. 
do you feel then because obviously again encapsulation is a big part of OO and do you feel then like the data being treated as an implementation detail inside of OO and it's the fact that it is this black box is a good thing or do you prefer you know as you say with like unit testing and stuff I'm guessing it's better to have this exposed as it's almost like it's you know something you're passing in and you're getting out and you're kind of managing it in your own way yeah I think transparency is the big is one of the things you want in programming i mean ideally you'd be able to look at the method or the function and you'd be able to tell everything about it without having to look at the source code you can say well it takes this input and it has this output and if you're a functional programmer you say well i know for a fact that it doesn't do any kind of io because it doesn't have an io type and i know for a fact that it doesn't raise any errors because it doesn't have an error type in the you know and if it does have an error type i need to handle the errors and if it does have io i know i know it's going to be doing io whatever and you know you try to make everything explicit and ideally you shouldn't have to look at the actual implementation to figure out what it does i mean i don't really care what the implementation does as long as the input and output is very obvious so in order, in order for me to use the function, I shouldn't really care how it's implemented. But with traditional OO, I can't really do that. I have to really look inside. So the theory is nice of having self-contained encapsulated objects, but in practice, it makes working with them quite painful sometimes. That's it. Yeah, as you say, like I mean, in testing is probably one of the biggest ones where it's this whole setup process, the arrangement process just becomes such a trying and, you know, very internal, like the fact that we're trying to get away from the fact of knowing the internals, we have to know them enough to get the, you know, get the object into a state that we then want to be able to test. Exactly. And it kind of defeats the point. It's almost like defeating the purpose of the fact that we want it to be hidden. We're actually making it harder on ourselves as opposed to exposing the fact that, yes, this is very simple. It's, a you know, input output and that's it. Yes, I think so. Exactly. And I just think the rise of unit testing, the the rise of property-based testing, all these things lead to a certain style of writing code, which is very, very transparent. And um, the the classic object-oriented model is not transparent. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people why people are having problems with it. If you try and follow classic OO, it's not it's not so easy. And then, so from that, we had the behavior and state, and it was mutable state, uh, all in one in one area and one place, and it was just that black box. And then you went and discussed, you know, splitting those out, and you said, okay, well, we had this abstract mutable data model, yeah. and that's been around for years. And the idea was you had these simple functions, and you'd have your mutable state still, but you'd pass that in. And as a side effect of that, you know, function running, the state that you'd passed in had changed. Right. And I, and then from that, then it kind of leads on really well is to the immutable way, which is kind of the way we think of functional now and pure functions is that you know you have your inputs and then you have your outputs and the output you know the inputs never get changed and you get a new output and it there it's all immutable and i'm just wondering kind of are there any advantages you can still see to using a mutable approach where you know you have that really kind of side effecty it's, it's changed but it doesn't really feel like it's changed because there's no return it's void on it and things like that is there any like performance gains from doing it and would you still recommend it in certain areas yeah i mean mutability is generally more performant than immutability so um for example if i have an array of a thousand things or 10,000 things and i want to change them all it's a lot faster to change them in place than to make a whole copy of the array and change each one. I mean, it, it's not as, I mean, that's generally the, the thing. I mean, in, 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 um, it's not just changing in place, but I mean, if in high performance things with a, with a managed thing, with managed, uh, code like C sharp or Java, where there's garbage collection, it, it, allocations are the things you really want to avoid. If you can avoid allocating new objects, cause that's the killer in terms of performance. So, um, you know, mut- mutating something in place avoids having to allocate new things, and so that's also that's another reason why it's faster. But um, in practice, for most people, I mean, if you're doing if you if you've got a uh, you know a, a hotspot in your code, or you're doing high performance code anyway, um, then yes. But I think the the classic thing is don't optimize prematurely. You know, find out write your code in the in the way that's easiest to understand for other programmers. If if there are performance problems, then you can optimize it. Um, but you know, don't over, don't optimize it before you know you need to optimize it. Because it turns out that if you write code, uh, if you do use immutable things, and you write very clean code, clean code can op- often be handled very nicely by the runtime. For example, if, if very short-lived objects, the allocation cost is very cheap because they die young. And so, immutable objects that get allocated and then deallocated straight away are not as expensive as you might think they are 
so you know there are, i wouldn't i wouldn't really worry the the benefits of immutability are generally so much higher because mm. if it's immutable you can again it's transparency you know that this code is not doing anything weird behind the scenes it's not changing anything that you don't know about you know if you get if it's changing something it's giving you back a new object which has the changes in it so it's a lot easier to reason about the code and i mean the classic thing is why are you writing code for the computer or are you writing code for other developers you know mostly the reason we're using high level languages in the first place is because we're really trying to communicate with other people we're not really trying to communicate with the with the computer the computer you know is smart enough normally if we have a decent language to understand without amb- ambiguity but it's you know most of the problems in code are really it, it, certainly in the domains i work in which is more like enterprise coding most of the problems are not to do with performance they're to do with understanding what the customer wants and understanding what other developers have done. <laughs> you know, you're looking at code that's a year old or two years, two years old. It's like, I really just want to make sure that this code does what it uh, says it's doing. And one of the things, if, it, if, you, if you're not sure what it does, you tend to be very risk averse about making changes. You know, refactoring an old code base, it's like, if I touch it, how many things are going to break? And that's the terrible feeling. So you end up with this horrible legacy code that nobody touches because they're too scared about breaking something. And if code is, if the if the code is much more transparent and things are immutable, you tend to have a lot more confidence about making changes. You know, feeling that you probably be well, hopefully you won't be breaking things. You know, as easily if if you if you can reason about the code from from above that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, it's the brittleness of code. And I think the worst, I think the, the worst thing a code base can ever get into is a state where it says, no, nope, no one's allowed to touch this. You know, we, we really have no say or no, you know, we're, we're totally worried that if we tweak one thing on this, we don't know the side effects or, and this is where mutability comes in. You know, we don't know what else is going to change or break. Exactly. Uh, some other feature, something a completely other place could be broken and you have no idea why unless you look and run with drowned. And as you say, like it's the cognitive overhead as well, and it's reducing that, and the fact that immutability at the price of maybe a little bit performance does give us that. And we would all be writing in assembly then, if we if we really wanted the ultimate performance, we would be writing in the lowest possible form, um, right. as opposed to all these high, you know, the higher level languages that have been brought up and, and made. Right. It's for the fact that we want to solve problems and, and communicate yeah. with us as humans, as opposed to the computer. Yeah, and it, like I say, it depends on which. If I'm working device, if I'm doing device drivers or something, I'll be I'll be writing in C, you know, or mm. C plus plus. And if but if I'm doing enterprise software, I'd be I want to use a high level language. I don't want to be doing I don't want to be messing around with pointers and stuff, you know, and having to do my own allocations and stuff. So yeah, it, it, obviously each, each each system is different, and and sometimes you get. I think programmers, you know, people who are used to systems programming, they complain that it's like you can't control the performance, you know. It's just it's just a different domain. It's like it's a huge number of different kinds of problems all solved by programmers, and they're, they're very, very different problems, and I don't think we should try and have one size fits all, you know. And it's really interesting because one one thing in my exploration of closure uh, is the idea of like the transient data structures. So by default, everything's obviously immutable. But if you need that performance, you can use transient data structures that will essentially unlock the box and allow you to do like kind of, you know, the mutability. And it's got a really interesting, um, there's a really interesting quote on it. Like if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? And if a pure function mutates some local data in order to produce an immutable return value, is that okay? And I think it's that kind of working out where your boundaries are immutable you know if internally i have to do some mutable state uh, just to get to a place that as long as i'm returning an immutable value that then you know the to the client it's just a pure function it's just to get to that that actual result i you know i, I feel that's an okay way to be oh, absolutely and it's it's very common i mean in f sharp too i mean when you like when you sort a list in f sharp it basically copies it into an array sorts the array in place and then copies it back into a list. It turns out that's faster than doing all the allocations to you know to sort a linked list in memory. Um, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, as long as nobody sees it. No, I mean the whole point is it's transparency. Is the the you know um, the the what they, you know what they call referential um, transparency, where I can replace the inputs and outputs. As, you know, it's always going to give me the same input and the same output, and it, I don't really care how it works inside. Yeah. But it gets the cognitive mental overhead of not re- needing to worry what's happening inside. And it's just the fact that it's an implementation detail to make it a bit faster. Yeah. And as long as we are providing that immutable, you know, return that then the, the actual consumer can still work with it as they work as they wish. Yeah. 
The next one, actually, and I'm going to bring up the M word there. So the state monad, and you bring it up in a really interesting way. Not only now you want to make the turtle move around, but you've also got this idea of collisions or the idea that does it actually do the intended action that you want and how much how much did it actually be able to move? And that's when you get this idea that a function, you know, from one input to multiple outputs. Could you maybe explain what actually the state monad is and what kind of, you know, what is it trying to solve? Right. Okay. So in the, in the talk, I talk about if you... The problem with having immutable stuff is that every time you do something, uh, you get a new copy of the state back because you can't change the state. You just get a new version of the state with with it with the position and the direction and stuff updated. Now, if if you have very simple operations, you can use in F sharp the piping operator just to take the the output of one function and feed it to the out to the input of the next function. So if the only thing that's being output from the function is the state you can feed it directly into the next function and that's fine. But if you start having more than one output, if you have the state plus some information that you need to uh, work with, the code starts getting really ugly because you have the state. You don't really, when you're coding, you don't really care about the state of the turtle most of the time. You just want to focus on the business, on the logic, you know, which like if it hits the wall, turn left. That's the logic. I don't really care what it is. So the state monad is a way to thread the state um, through the your code logic and kind of behind the scenes um, so that you don't have to deal with it explicitly. And if you use the state monad, your your code can can handle the state, and yet it doesn't look it doesn't look like it. It ends up looking at almost like imperative code, like you know, call this function. Uh, if I've hit the wall, do this, and if I haven't hit the wall, do that. And the fact that the state's been threaded through the scenes uh, behind the scenes is basically transparent. So how the state monad actually works. Uh, probably not going to go I can't really explain it and in fact a lot of people don't really care how it works in practice I mean I do kind of quickly go into it in the talk but um, the point is it's it's a, it's just a concept that allows you to do that um, and you know if you're interested you can learn more details I have a whole that's my my whole yeah. Frankenfunctor oh, talk yes. <laughs> it's all about building the state monad so yeah it's I mean it's in Haskell and so on, you pretty much have to use the state manner to, to keep track of state. In languages with uh, mut- mutable things, it would be possible to not bother with that uh, and use a mutable state. And depending on how I was feeling that day, I might actually do that. I might use a mutable state. And, and Because if, if I've, as long as the mutable state doesn't escape from the scope, so if I'm doing something like, like drawing a triangle, I'm going, you know, I'm going this direction and turning and going that direction again and turning. And I, if I say a function to create a triangle, I could have the state be mutable within that, but then not expose it outside. And so I'm quite pragmatic. Uh, F sharp is a quite a pragmatic language and you can choose to use mutable state or not. The state mona is a bit ugly to use in F sharp. In Haskell, it's it's easy, it's better supported, you know. So really, then, like the idea of the state mode it monad is the fact that you know we want these pure functions that are returning, you know, maybe the state, the next state, but also it has a different shape, and it's not a we're not able to just puzzle these things together because they're all one one input function, one output functions. And it's that idea of really it's hiding through, you know, like what is the most important bit of this, you know, within an abstraction, trying to just say what's the core domain problem that we're trying to solve. And it's just behind the scenes, then it's handling this extra layer. But it's because of the purity that we want to use that as opposed to just using side effects and using immutable data structures. Yeah, exactly. And then what the state mode allows you to do is write functions which have everything where everything is immutable and there is no you know, mutable state anywhere, but then use them as if you were working with mutable state. So use them in a way that you didn't have to worry about keeping track of state. But behind the scenes, each individual function is actually a pure function and means you can test them individually. Uh, all the benefits of using immutable data and, and, and pure functions, you can you can test them on their own. You can compose them with other functions. They don't have any global variables that they need to access or anything. So they're still very composable. Uh, it's, just really a, it's just really a trick um, to allow you to hide some of the management of all that stuff when you're working within practice. So it's a win-win all around. And, and I was going to ask, actually, you know, and I think you, you did touch on it a little bit, is kind of the balancing of the cost of introducing abstractions like this. You know, when, when you employ such a thing as opposed to using mutable and you say you're pragmatic, so I'm guessing it is just a kind of you see how you feel and where, if the problem requires such a, you know, a concept of abstraction to be used as opposed to just using mutable data and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the state... 
there's a few other monads which are used. We'll, we'll talk about them, uh, you know, using the success and failure and then using async. Where you sort of have, there's no way around that really, and they actually add a lot of value. The, the state monads, the value adds, I'm torn. I think it, it really depends on, on the scenario. But um, in F sharp, I would say it's relatively uncommon to be using it um, just because I think the cost, at some point, the benefit is is outweighed by the cost. So the benefit of, of hiding the state is that really worth it? If you just have a mutable within your scope, you have five lines of code that reference a mutable. Is that isn't that easier? Is it easy for someone else to understand? It depends. It depends on the the team you're working with, and it depends on how much you care about being super pure all the time. And that's it, yeah. Because I suppose you've obviously got two camps. You've got more than two camps, but you've got like the idea of being completely pure all the time, being a pragmatist, and then being like obviously mutable. You know, like it doesn't matter, anything goes. And I suppose you, you're in the middle camp there that it depends on what the problem is, and it depends on how many source lines it is. Because if, as you say, if you can read in, in, a, in a little block, okay, there is a bit of mutability going on here, but I can understand it, as opposed to trying to um, um, you know, ravel this abstraction layer, the cost of it to make it easier to read. Because I'm guessing the abstraction layer really for the state mode is to make it easier for you to read and understand the domain logic. But then adding the mutability in, again, is another layer where it's like, okay, well, it's actually easier for me just to to expose that and be like, yes, we are breaking, you know, purity here, but in the in the case to make it easier for you to understand. Yeah, I'm always, I'm, I'm, I would always start, I would always start erring on the side of purity. I mean, I think one of the things that functional programming has really helped contribute to the conversation about programming in general is changing the defaults. So rather than having mutability as the default, immutability is the default. And if you want mutability, you have to ask for it specially and you know the same thing with uh just i mean just many of the things that are just slightly the defaults are just different in a functional program language and i think that's good so i like having the defaults be pure functions and and immutability and so on but i like having the escape hatch also personally it's like when you need it uh, it's just nice to be able to i'm not i mean yeah i'm not a purist in the sense that you can't uh, always you have to always be pure for the sake of it i think the whole the, the point of programming is to solve problems and the point of writing code is to communicate that to other people in, and other people also includes you in six months time when you've forgotten what you did <laughs> um, so even if you're a solo programmer you're still communicating with your future self you know so yeah, so what is the best way to communicate stuff without getting you into trouble? Now, anything that causes, the, the caveat there is anything that's going to cause you pain, you know, like having global variables that mutate, uh, you know, without, that's going to, that's bad. Yeah, so don't do anything that's going to cause you pain, that's going to make it hard to debug, that's going to make it brittle or something. But like I say, having a little bit of mutable state for the next five lines of code and then wrapping that up inside a function, I'm, I'm okay with that. That's cool. And and then so following on from that, you, you kind of expand on the problem and you kind of say, well, let's handle these cases, you know, of have we successfully been able to move to the distance we wanted or add a failure case in? And, you know, you've got all this idea of the tri-cat, you know, the if-elses and trying to handle it that way. And obviously in the OO world, you'll be, or the enterprise OO world, you'll be throwing exceptions out and all that horrible stuff. And But you come across a very elegant, you know, either monad and using the success and failure there. And it's very much like your railway orientated programming. And it's explicitly handling those error conditions. Uh, during the computation without using the you know the beauty without using the exceptions and i'm just wondering kind of what is the either monad the either monad it's this, yeah it's basically in i've got it as results uh i've got it as a result type which is success or failure in haskell the either monad has a left side and a right side uh and by convention they have the right side be the success side and the left side be the error side um most other languages the problem with f sharp also has a choice type which is again has no no bias towards either side most languages rust and ocaml and stuff now have a result type which is biased towards the success case so when you all the functions assume you know they're about chaining successes together rather than chaining failures together so um i call it result but in haskell it would be called the either monad the thing about the, talking about this, see, the reason I like it is that in in the state monad, you know, there's trade-offs between clarity of code versus how hard it is to use the thing. I think in this case, the, the trade-offs are very high because error handling really contaminates your code and you, it's really easy to lose the logic of what's going on when you have exceptions and you have, you know, any if you look at any piece of code, you'll probably find that most, like 30% of the code, maybe 50% of the code is actually error handling. And it makes it makes the it makes the code ugly, but more importantly, it, you you lose what the code is supposed to do, which is communicating the intent of why you wrote it in the first place. 
And so what I really like about the either monad or the railway order programming, whatever you want to call it, is it hides, again, it hides the failures and focuses on the happy path without just ignoring the failures. Because, I mean, one way would be to just write your code and assume that nothing's going to go wrong, and that's equally bad. So to me, it's just a very nice middle ground between looking like everything's on the happy path but handling the failures nicely behind the scenes. Being explicit, and I think that's the one thing about these error conditions, you know, explicitly handling them as opposed to the exceptions where you just don't know. And I know that we spoke about it last podcast with you that, you know, it's the idea of, well, it could just throw and I have no idea and it's not trusting that function and the function's not giving me kind of an idea of what's going to happen. You know, at least in this case, I know the return type, it could fail or it could give me something back. And it's been able to say within the monad this way of being able to construct them and handle them together is able to then just provide that core business problem. And, and you know kind of express that yeah i mean the the nice thing about you returning a result it's very clear that this function could return an error it's it's, it's again making the function much more transparent about what it does and if you have a an error type rather than using a string if you have an, an error type which is a choice a, a union type you can see here's all the possible things that could go wrong with this function so that's very nice it's a much more self-documenting way of using the function i should just point out i'm not some people have have um said that the using result type everywhere is a bad idea and um i agree in some cases uh, i would i would reserve the this for domain errors things that you know might happen and which you need to document things that you can't handle like you know out of memory or or null reference exceptions or whatever those shouldn't be handled by the, they, but they they throw i mean that's there's nothing you can do so you're it's your exceptional behavior isn't it <laughs> yeah those are you know like some languages you know call that panic basically something went wrong i literally can't handle it that's a good case for using exceptions you just throw the exception and it gets caught uh higher up at your boundary or at the top level of the program and gets you know t- logged and stuff but so the kinds of things i'm talking about here to be clear are things which are part of the domain these are things like you know, hitting the wall in a turtle graph that's something you would expect to have i don't want to be throwing and catching exceptions for that i want to i want to return that as a as a failure that i can then you know actually have that as a documented kind of thing thinking of it you know as not only just success and failure and, and thinking it more in like the either left or right have you seen any other kind of use cases for using a left and right you know the railway oriented approach other than just error handling um no because well the the the, the you can have a you can have a, a union type with two choices with two possible where something went this way or something went that way you know and there's no bias towards either one with the the, the railway oriented model and the, the the either approach is that there is a bias that the you're chaining successes together and then when you get a failure you're going to be bypassing the rest so so the result the result type and that's one of the reasons why f sharp actually has both the result it has a result type which is which is biased towards success and then it has a choice uh type where it there's no bias either way and it's not very it's not clear at all you know what the which what the first choice and the second choice mean it's up to the the user to decide what they mean so it's it's fair enough to have both so i would use if i if they were uh if it wasn't a success failure i wouldn't use the result type i'd use a different type and it's very easy to write your own types if i'm returning something which is you know you're returning either this or you're returning this other thing and neither one is right or wrong then i'd probably might write my own type uh just so because it's so easy to write a quick type that documents that so, that's it and being more expressive in the domain exactly. just, yeah. i like to, i like i tend to err on the side of over documenting things again because I'm, I'm a fan of having my code be readable and I, I you know i don't like very short variable names i don't like obscure types that are so abstract that i that they don't make sense you know well, there's no need for I's and X's and Y's now. You know, we have the ability to have as much memory as we want. We can be as expressive, you know, to a limit within our variable names, our function names and stuff. And we're not trying to conserve memory. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in code, the variable names obviously get compiled down, getting compiled mm. out anyway. So it's, again, it's about communicating with the uh, the developers. The compiler doesn't care how long your, your variable names are. But developers do, or other people who are reading your code do. So, I mean, yeah, I don't mind. It depends. You know, it, 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 the classic argument in functional programming is if I have um, a function which is very generic, there's no – you can't give sensible names to those things. X's and Y's. So you tend to use X's <laughs> and Y's because, you know, like um, composing two functions, they're typically in a functional – In the, the parameters are called F and G. They're just two functions – you call it. You could call it function one and function two, but that's not really giving you any more information 
then you had you know a first function and second function. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it maybe for beginners actually, you know, calling it first function and second function might actually make it easier to understand. But um, and I so I don't mind using short things when the context is really obvious. Like if I've got a loop and I'm calling it i for the loop index or something, I think that's fair enough. It's so obvious; it's such an obvious thing to do. But in most of my code, I try and have quite long-winded names, which is uh, I think hopefully one of the reasons why people you know like my examples because I try and make them easy easy enough to read. Uh, just from the names. The other thing is, from a function point of, program point of view, the name is shouldn't be important because from a from a mathematical point of view, what you call it makes no difference to what it does. You can call it x, you can call it y, you can call it anything. It's the same function. It doesn't matter what you call it. So one of the arguments there is just call it. If you call it something obscure, then you're making it very obvious that it doesn't make any difference what you call it. You've got x's and y's. Well, I actually disagree with that because, again, the person who's the you know the reader is more important than the compiler. So the names are a great way of communicating something. It's true that the compiler can't check. You know, you could you could totally misname something and give it a very misleading name. But there's, I mean, that's true. You know, of anything. I think names are a very valuable resource. We spend a lot of time looking at code and. I think a, a good name is is worth its weight in gold. So I, mm. I try and do that in my code. Well, it's like you say, you know, with like the index as I and things like that, and it's it's all about proximity, isn't it? You know, like if you know how far a distance this is going to be used, because if things that are going to be further distance, I shouldn't just call it I because I can't get any contacts from just context from just looking at it. Oh, this is within a loop fashion. It's you know, it depends. You know, the, the longer the name typically is when. A further proximity from when it was actually generated or you know assigned exactly i mean that's exactly right yeah i mean if i have a global variable called i it could be anything but if i have a, if i have to find it two lines above my code it's pretty it's very clear and that actually brings me to another little pet peeve about functional programmers is some functional programmers really like to use weird symbols yes uh, well it's you know, cool it does look cool it does look cool <laughs> but you've no idea what they are and you could say, well, you know, you need to learn what they are. And it's true. Some symbols are so common and they're so consistent between languages that it's fair enough that you have to learn what they are. I mean, I remember when I was first learning C and I was like, I saw the plus plus and I was thinking, what does plus plus mean? What, how is that different from a normal plus, you know? So you just have to learn what it means. And, in, you know, in F sharp, there's the pipe symbol and there's composition symbol and there's bind symbol and so on there's a couple of ones which are pretty standard that's fair enough but i think if you're writing a library to be used by other people it's quite hard this goes to this thing of trying to um you know having to look at the source to try and figure out what it is because a symbol it doesn't have a name so what i have to do is go to the file and, and look at the comment associated with the symbol or i have to find out what the symbol is an alias for and so if I do use, I mean, sometimes, a, a, you know, a symbol or an operator can be really, really helpful, but I like to just sort of define it at the top of my file so that people can find it really easily. So in a library, I would use, you know, uh, a word like map or something. And then when I use it in my code, I might define a symbol for it, but then I, it makes it, it's right at the top of the file and it's easy to find. It's not buried in some import somewhere. So I think it's a great way. And like the fact that they've got this whole Unicode spectrum that people typically, you know, find that they can use all these symbols uh, and, you know, just say, yeah, it, it can get quite bewildering in some libraries. Yeah, I, I think, again, I I don't think, I think there's a, there's a little bit of a schism between the, and I, we talked about this last time, about programming as, as maths versus programming as communicate, you know, as um, a social activity. And, you know, if you're if you're formatting a, a, an equation, it's quite nice to have the arrows look like real arrows and fancy symbols and stuff. But you know, I don't think we're writing math. I think we're writing, you know, certainly the kind of code I write is not particularly mathematical. So I, I try and avoid using symbols if I can. And then, so, so following on from that, then you you then kind of bring up the idea that what happens if um, you know I do this move, but I don't know. Maybe it's just a robot. It's you know on a network connection. There's there's some kind of you know delay, and it's an asynchronous in nature. Um, and it's how to handle those, and that's kind of dealt with by the you know, asynchronous or async monad. I was wondering, actually, is async a monad? Like, is that a name for it, or does it have a more generic kind of naming? Um, well, async is F sharp's word for it. 
In Haskell, the the nearest thing would probably be the IO monad, which is monads are very tricky things to explain. It's more like a pattern than a thing. So it's it's a it's a it's a data type plus some functions plus some rules about how the functions have to work. Um, so it's three. It's actually three sets of things. It's not just a data type. Um, so when people talk about list monads and stuff, you have to be careful. You know about what you're. It's not just you know. I would just call it a list. You know. So in this case, async is really a way of programming where you have callbacks. You know. So in, I mean, the classic async is you do something and you don't know how long it's going to take. It's gone off to do some outside world stuff, and it, when it's finished, it will give you you call back when it's done, and you pass it a function to call back. So the you can totally write code that way. In in most languages and in JavaScript, for example, you have the what they call it, the pyramid of doom. Where yeah, you just and have, you use promises and stuff to yeah, kind of yeah. narrow that down. Yeah, you have callbacks within callbacks within callbacks within callbacks, and you, your code starts getting crazy. So the the async in F sharp and and promises in JavaScript and for you know various other things, it's about handling that complexity. And it, just like with the state monad, we we pass the state behind the scenes, and with the the uh, either monad or the result monad, we pass the error handling, the error, the failure case behind the scenes. In this case, we, we, we're, ha- we're handling the kind of callbacks behind the scenes. So when you write your code uh, using async and F-sharp, everything's, things are happening through callbacks, but it's your code, it doesn't look like it in your code. Your code looks very straightforward. You know, do this thing and then do this other thing. And the fact that there were, the, the, the two things are connected by a callback is hidden from you. And again, again, it makes the code much, much easier to read. So, yeah. And, and in, it, the, in, in F-sharp, the async is implemented in a monadic way. It's implemented the same way as, as all the other things. In languages like C-sharp, it's implemented as part of the compiler, so you can't write your own version of it so easily. That's cool. And like, so from this, you know, we've just spoken about these three monads or, you know, monadic structures. And uh, it's really interesting looking at this. And then you realize the familiarities and kind of similarities between them. And it seems, as you say, you've just mentioned, you know, kind of you're adding that level of complexity to hide a certain behavior that, you know, is managed or threaded through without your needing to worry about it, really. And, you know, you're dealing with a certain problem. You're, you're focusing your lens on just one bit of the problem. And you're saying, OK, I want to hide that other bit. Similarly, how you would construct something in OO or, you know, you'd kind of, you know, design a system in general, really. Would you say that this is like the key value of monads in, in general use cases? Is that kind of abstraction to hide certain bits and then allowing you then to control and, and focus on one single bit? Yeah, I mean monads. I mean the the fundamental usage of monad is to chain functions together. I mean the whole the kind of driving the core uh, design principle in functional programming is composition. So you want to glue things. You want to glue smaller things together to make bigger things. And when you have let's say normal functions, gluing them together is very straightforward. Or functions where the you know the output is the same as the input of the next function, you can just glue them together very easily. Uh, but when the output is different from the next function, uh, when it's the wrong shape because it has something like I/O, it has async, it has errors or something, it, you can't just glue them together. So the, the monads allow is a technique for allowing you to compose certain kinds of functions together as if they were kind of simple functions. So that's really the main benefit of of having monads is they hide to, yeah they hide the complexity. Of, of gluing things together they make it easier to they, they allow you to focus on the composition uh, and ignore some of the other things which get in the way of that on a, a bit of a tangent actually a kind of different thing like why, why do you think it people find it so hard to kind of grasp monads and there's always this thing of like a monads a burrito and all these kind of weird analogies for them and stuff and it it's very one of those things where i think a lot of people want to know it and do they even need to know it i suppose is one thing uh, you know, it's, at its core, or is it just, you know, understanding at least, I understand that, you know, these kind of techniques like the success and failure, the async and understanding, you know, that I can use this thing called a state monad or, you know, this kind of abstraction? Yeah, I don't think, I think a lot of people explain monads by saying, here's the definition of a monad. Um, and the problem is that's completely irrelevant as a programmer. You don't care. Really, and, yeah, I mean, laws if you're doing, yeah, yeah, it's like, do you really care? How does that, how does that help you get your job done? What you really care about is error handling, or, or you know, async, or, or whatever. You work, you know, there's certain practical 
problems that you're trying to solve. And like I say, you, you have these different kinds of functions which have outputs which are, you know, which are not composable straight away. And then there's like, oh, if you write these kinds of functions, you write some helper functions like map and bind, it turns out you can glue them together. And that's awesome. And then once you've done that three or four times, there's a pattern there. And at that point, you can you can say, okay, at that point, you might introduce it and say, well, okay, a monad is the abstraction of that pattern in general. But I, I really think, yeah, to be honest, people do not need to know about it. Certainly, they don't need to know about it to get started. I mean, that's one of my um, issues with, with Haskell is that, you know, you have to know about monads before you can do Hello World. And I, I mean, you know, I understand why they do that, but it's unfortunate that people can Barrier can't... to entry just yeah, becomes too high. Yeah, it's just a bit of a... It is. And I, I personally think that you should just be able to dive in and start with practical things. And then once you've got experience, then you can start seeing patterns between various things. But you can't see the patterns between things if you haven't, if you don't know the, the fundamentals of the things themselves. If you haven't done the error handling and you haven't done async and you haven't done you know, the stuff that you're not going to see, the, the having, the, having a monad is not going to make any sense to you because you, there's, you, you see no point. There's no reason for it, you know. So I think you have, to st- you have to start from the concrete and once you've got the examples, then you can start seeing an abstraction across all those examples. So it is useful to I think it is useful concept, but I don't think it's a concept that you need to know to start programming. Well, I say for the audience, I definitely recommend your Doctor uh, Frankenfunctor, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, and the Mona. <laughs> that that's another. That's another silly. That's another silly talk. But yeah, that's really oh, no, about, it's a great talk. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. I, it's, uh, just for for the audience, that's when I, I basically yeah take the Frankenstein thing, building a monster from the parts, and each part is has a different problem and you have to glue them all together. And that was, again, when I came up with the idea of that, because I really wanted to focus on composition. How do you glue things together? And so I had the idea of um, assembling a, a, a kind of Frankenstein monster. <laughs> it was, it's a really great idea. And I think, you know, I think that's one thing, again, like the thread throughout all your, the way your, your analogies you use and stuff, I think they're great and they really kind of allow you know, specifically me, you know, to kind of relate to and understand at least this, you know, quite complex topics. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to have a bit of fun. And they, they are kind of complex topics. And um, I know some people um, find think it's I'm trivializing things or I'm making things too silly. And I'm not really going into the kind of theoretical detail behind these things. And to which I say, well, you know, so what? <laughs> it's like, if you if you like theory, there's lots and lots of academic yeah. books that will explain all this stuff without using silly analogies. But if you find all the academic stuff quite hard, then hopefully my stuff is a bit easier to digest. So, well, no, absolutely, and it's 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 how it unlocks it for you know a, a wider variety of people. You know, say a lot of people aren't going to want to pick up and understand or try and at least you know these very abstract terms and stuff, and they're going to need examples, and they're going to need examples that are going to work in their day to day life, or maybe in this kind of you know made up world you've 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 kind of you know devised in you know the Frankenstein kind of model, mm-hmm. and it allows you to really see um, like the play by play of of what happens, and I think that's what as programmers we kind of like is that kind of idea of oh, here's the problem we're trying to solve and these are the tools we're going to use to solve it yeah exactly uh, practical you know practical problem solving i think most developers relate to that absolutely and, and actually really uh, on a bit of a tangent actually with one and it was mentioned in that presentation and the fact that list is a monad or has a monadic structure and and the idea of map and flat map or in this you know in bind and i think for me actually one of the the hard graphs i think a lot you know what you see when you go into functional programming or, or really general now, kind of the, the general move away is to like this idea of list comprehensions. And actually you mentioned, you know, in small talk that this was it already exists, uh-huh. you know, the idea of like mapping and then you had the flat map and I, kind of taking away that the fact that a map isn't what we, you know, I think a lot more developers probably now think of a map as being mapping a list to a function but really generalizing that and realizing oh, okay actually no it just follows the same structures as all these other things like async and state and all that and how they can be applied yeah i mean again the, the reason why people call list a monad is because you ha- if you have things that return lists you can't really connect them to something that doesn't have a list as input. um 
again, I, I'm not sure how helpful it is to the average person to say, oh, it's a monad. I don't really, you know, it's one of the kind of, if you already know what monads are, then yes, that's that's interesting. But if you don't know already know what monads are, that's completely useless. So I, I really avoid I don't I really avoid um, saying things like that in my blog. I don't think I've ever said that list is a monad in my talk actually. I mean I say it in passing, but I wouldn't I wouldn't try and stress it as something important. And it's just it's just those patterns, isn't it? And I think it's realizing the patterns. And I think as developers, we're good with that as well. We want to understand a pattern and see what's going on. Yeah, patterns exactly. I think developers think in terms of patterns. We tend to I mean, we tend to like to always, you know, if if there's two or three things where there's something in common, we do like to tend to abstract that out. I mean, that's definitely a, a kind of habit of programmers. Um, it's a question of how how far how mu- how much abstraction is you know the bang for the buck. Sometimes you have, can have too much abstraction where people can't understand it. So, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's definitely a habit of of programmers to to try and see patterns and things and try and, you know, don't repeat yourself and make things more abstract if you can. Um, it's interesting, though. There's a bit of a counter uh, movement in the in developers. I mean, the, the problem with the abstraction is that, you, you you know, and even in the OL world, you have, you know, very abstract. You have a factory that has a dependency container which returns a, another factory, which is, you know, you can get, end up getting something so complicated uh, that you can't really understand it. And sometimes it's just nice to be concrete and to have just like the codes right in front of you. And I you think you don't want an abstract factory builder. <laughs> exactly. And I, I mean, I think one of the reasons why people like languages like Go, because Go doesn't have generics and it doesn't have this and it doesn't have this, it's like very limited. The, the, the side effect of being, you know, limited like that is you can't do weird things. And it means that all all the code is going to be very concrete and very in your face. And I think for many situations, that's actually exactly what you want. Too much abstraction can be just as bad as too little abstraction, I think. And so, there's again, there's a balance there. But uh, I can see why some people are sort of resisting languages where you can do some incredibly complex things. Someone posted some Scala code, which they, you know, that was very, very hard to understand. <laughs> so, you know, if you if you have the power to do really complex things, somebody somewhere is going to do that. And in enterprise coding, I mean, that's fine in, in, in certain libraries or something. Sometimes you might need to do that. But I think in, in my context, which is, you know, enterprise programming, I do think that you should write code. You shouldn't be able to write code that's too weird. And it actually, in a language that doesn't allow you to do that, it's actually a good language. A language that doesn't let you do too much abstraction can actually be a good language to have because it means that everyone's at the same level. You don't you don't have this very wide range between the super weird stuff and the basic stuff. You're using a language that does really structure you to not allow you to kind of explore these other, you know, these very abstract things or, it, you know, kind of use these funky things. It, it allows everyone to be at a certain level and there is none of that kind of you know a bit of random code can get into the code base that you know and again you know talking about like enterprise and thinking in that kind of world you know someone else is gonna have to pick this up you know whether it be you in a couple of months time or someone else completely you know down the line and it's that kind of code should be simple and boring you know that's you know that's the real kind of that's the, the the beauty of good code is the fact that i can read it and it's pretty boring and i understand how it goes and it's i know as developers and i know me personally i love a haha or i love a little cool trick and be like oh look how cool this is I'm like well i can't put that in, in source code and you know commit it because how much you know me like five minutes ago didn't understand that it's only because now i've grasped oh i can use this cool trick but it isn't something that should be used you know for the general mass of code absolutely yeah i mean I totally agree. Boring code is be- is better in most cases. I mean, if if you're writing a fun project for yourself, that's fine. But if you're writing a project that's going to have other developers looking at it and needs to be maintained, then yeah, boring is 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 definitely the right way to go. Yeah, and it's interesting because um because I'm primarily PHP. People want to add new things into a language, and it's very interesting kind of language design. People, you know, people from all kinds of ilks, all ilks. You know, they're studying functional. They're you know they're from down to C people and all this, and and people want all these different things, and it's trying to work out well. What's the general consensus and do we want cool stuff in the language? Would it make it harder for a beginner to pick up or for someone who's just going to use this code? Is it worthwhile actually adding something in that someone, a developer could take and really exploit? That's, yeah, that's a tough, that's a very tough question. I mean, I, I have a lot of admiration for good language designers because 
um, it's very easy to go overboard. I, in my experience, the people who are good language designers tend to be very resistant to adding new features <laughs> because once it's in there, you have to support it forever. And if you've made a mistake, you have to live with that mistake forever. Which PHP has a lot of. <laughs> PHP is a good example of how, what happens if you if the language evolves without without a, a clear plan. But, you know, on the hand, PHP is very successful. You can't argue with its success. But, I mean, as it gets more mature, you know, you want to try and fix, you want to fix your kind of youthful mistakes. But unfortunately, with the language, you can't do that. You have to sort of live with that forever now, which is painful. But so, yeah, I'd be very resistant about adding new things. But on the hand, yeah, people always want the latest things and people want to emulate whatever the trendy thing is. That is the thing, isn't it? And it's familiar in their language that they can use because their stack is X and they want to be able to do it in that as opposed to going into a whole new stack saying, well, let's just use a Haskell or Erlang. No, it's that they want to bring those concepts they've, they've learned or they've explored into a language that they already know. Right. And the problem with that is you end up with object-oriented COBOL. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, so I, much as I like functional programming, I think that languages should be should have an opinion and if they're not a functional language they shouldn't start being a functional language because you end up with kind of half-baked pieces of you know but you don't you get some of the benefits but you don't really get all the benefits unless you have a language designed around a certain paradigm so i'm funny enough like so even though i like functional programming i would i would be resistant to adding functional features to non-functional languages so that's interesting then. So, because like, what do you think of like C sharps and Java's who are really going down that route of landing lambdas and? I think lambdas are good because they they're basically an inline anonymous function. That, that, that I have no problem with that. I would have C sharp. I think it's verging on having getting too many features, too many language changes. Uh, they're adding pattern matching and they're adding case classes and they're adding yeah various things. And I think I mean I understand why they're doing it. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, people are demand. It's, it's a tough one. I, I don't really want to second guess what other people are doing. But I, I mean, for me as a developer, I would rather switch language. If I want to do a certain kind of thing, I would switch to a language that does it really well. And ironically, I mean, the, the, the thing with um, platforms like the JVM and .NET is the whole point is you should be able to switch between languages. You know, if I want an object-oriented language, I want a functional language, and I can sort of mix and match them on the same platform rather than having one language that tries to solve, tries to be a kitchen sink. So, yeah, it's a tough one. I, I, I'm glad I'm not a language designer because you're getting, you're getting heat. No matter what you do, you're going to get flack from both sides. <laughs> so. Well, it's a really interesting point there because you mentioned the JVM and you mentioned like the CLR and stuff. And really kind of like JavaScript is a very interesting case where it has become almost its own JVM and its own CLR because it's a platform for a lot of trans, you know, pilers and, and other languages on top of it. Yes. And I was wondering, what's your opinion on that? You know, the fact that you've got JavaScript, but you've also got this extra layer on top. Yeah, I think I think um, the ASM.js and, and web, WebAssembly and stuff like that, very interesting because, yeah, it's, it's basically, you've got a language, it's been delivered to every platform already, Um Piggyback, but the language itself is has got some horrible nastinesses to it, um, even worse than PHP. But I mean, and everyone knows that. But so yeah, having a, a um, transpiling other languages to JavaScript is, is to me is a great solution because you you get the benefit of using your nice statically typed language, uh, and then you generate some very uh, minimalistic JavaScript, which then the, the you know the JavaScript engine knows how to compile quite. I'm actually amazed how how good the JavaScript engines are, given that um, given they're working with the language that they are working with. So yeah, I mean I think that's actually a, a fine a fine way of doing things. I, I can see a lot of future in that. Yeah, it, it, it's almost become the fact that they have to, don't they? Because of the fact that it's the language of choice that everything runs JavaScript now it's the one way forward to be able to kind of expand and stuff is to be able to do this translation process and everyone's got their own ideas it's one of those things where you know maybe i'm writing php you're writing you know f sharp but we both need to run and use javascript and it's whether you know what type of you know do you need a functional language do you want like a lisp do you want these type of things but there's a good example i mean i can if i have two different pages i can write some of the javascript in php and generate JavaScript, and I could write some of it in F Sharp and generate JavaScript. So it is the kind of common denominator, and it actually does allow interop um, in languages. Uh, I mean, most of the transpilers allow you to use existing JavaScript libraries, 
the F sharp Fable one and you know Elm and stuff like that, um, which is great because then you can piggyback on what other people have done, but then you still get to work in your own favorite language. I think it's great. And that's the beauty of the JVM and the CLR, isn't it? The fact you can do that too. You know, JVM. It's like I can take like, all these Java lang- libraries that have already been made and use them in like Scala or Clojure. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I mean obviously it's a little bit of an impedance mismatch when you're switching between you know the. the libraries designed around object-oriented stuff with mutability and you have to work in a functional language with immutability but you know you just write a wrapper or something it's not yeah, it's not that hard it just it means it's certainly faster to write a wrapper than it is to write it from scratch hey all so uh, it turned out i actually spoke to scott for quite a while in this episode uh, so i decided actually to make it easier i would actually split this up into two separate chunks so i thought this would maybe a good logical place to stop uh, so yeah i hope you enjoyed the show and we'll speak to you again next week goodbye You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.